I know more today about God than I knew when I first became a Christian. And hopefully that is true of everyone who's here this morning that is a Christian, that your knowledge of God has increased as time has gone on. But what I have experienced is that with my knowledge of God increasing, things that I don't understand about God have also increased. The more you learn about God and His Word, it's almost like the same is true that the more you don't understand about who God is. As you study, you begin to run upon things that, again, before, just as you became a Christian or before you were very familiar with the Bible, you weren't aware that this topic even existed, that this event had even occurred. And then all of a sudden, you show up to church and someone reads what we've just read. And if that didn't seem difficult to you, then I'm going to make it difficult as we look at it in a little more detail and see how odd this piece of passage is. As a matter of fact, uh, I bet no one here has probably ever heard a sermon on this passage, but it's here and it's for our prophet to listen and understand the reasoning why God has included this. Uh, in the Bible. And before we jump into this passage, I want to just bring you up to date where we're at. We've in a series of sermons that's going to take us up into Easter here in the first 12 chapters of the book of Exodus. And so far, we've looked at the first four chapters there. In the very beginning of the book, we saw that this people of God were oppressed by the Pharaoh. He was actually even committed to genocide to suppress the numerical expansion of the Israelites because he viewed them as a threat to his own nation. And we saw in that first chapter that when we are brokenhearted, as those Israelites were, we must trust God with our future. And then in chapter 2, we saw how the, uh, the attempt at genocide affected an individual family, ultimately in the life of Moses, who out of fear that Moses would be killed and thrown into the Nile to be consumed by the river or the crocodiles in the river, this mother decided to hide Moses in the river, and ultimately Moses was discovered by Pharaoh's own daughter, who chose to adopt Moses and raise Moses in the palace of Pharaoh. And we saw in that that just as Miriam had, or excuse me, just as Moses' mother had entrusted, trusted God in the midst of her trouble, we likewise, as God's people, must learn to trust God with the troubles that we face. And then two weeks ago, we were in the book of Exodus, and we saw all of chapter 3 and half of chapter 14, where after 40 years of Moses living in the desert, in the wilderness of Midian, God appears to Moses at the age of 80 in a, in a form of a burning bush to call Moses to be his agent to bring about salvation and deliverance from the bondage that the people of Israel were facing in Egypt. And we saw that while God isn't calling us to be necessarily the role Moses had, He is calling us to be His agents his representatives, to speak his message to all types of people. 
and that we ought to confidently pursue that call God has given to us because God is with us. Moses struggled to embrace his call, and the only confidence he was given was, I am with you. I'm with you, Moses. That's who you are. You're someone that has God's presence with him. And with that knowledge, we confidently embrace the call that God has given to us. And we're going to see towards the end of this story that that same theme is present. It just takes on a different direction. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at four different scenes in this story. And then at the end of that, I want us to put all those scenes together to see the truth that Moses is trying to communicate to us from this passage. So let's look at the first scene that we see here. And, and in the first scene in verses 18 through 20, really what we have is Moses saying farewell to his family there in Midian. Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you know that's not why Moses is ultimately going back to Egypt. God had appeared to him in a burning bush and told him he wanted to use Moses to deliver the Israelites out of slavery from, to Pharaoh. But Moses sort of holds back all the information uh, from Jethro in this account, most likely because he was worried about how Jethro would receive that, right? Father-in-law, hey, thank you. I've got this family here. I'd like to take your daughter and your two grandsons with me. God appeared to me in a burning bush while I was out doing some shepherding. I'm supposed to deliver this entire group of people from the greatest nation on earth. And I don't know how we're going to do that, but God just told me to go do it. So he was probably concerned, even had some own self-doubt on whether this would be received, because you remember 40 years earlier, Moses had tried to deliver the people, and the people had refused to acknowledge him. The Israelites had refused to acknowledge Moses as their deliverer. And so Moses is probably somewhat embarrassed at the thought of what Jethro's reaction would be, and so he sort of gives a courteous discretion within the bounds of truth, in order to uh, uh, sort of dodge any concerns or questions that Jethro would have of him. But the thing I want to draw your attention to in this particular scene is you'll notice what happens there in verse 20. He takes his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt, and notice this phrase, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And that staff was given to Moses as proof of God's presence with him. Back when in chapter 3 and 4, when there was concern about how will you, I know that you're with me, how will I be able to convince the people? God draws attention to the staff and he says, throw it down on the ground. It was able to turn into a snake. And then when Moses picked the snake up, it turned back into a staff. And so this was a tangible expression of God's presence. I am is with me as I make this journey to Egypt. So notice that God's presence in the form of the staff. The second scene is in verses 21 through 23, and this is where things get begin to get a little more difficult. Basically here, Moses receives a mission forecast, right? This is, Moses, let me tell you what's going to happen when you get to Egypt. He already told him that the people will receive him, but there's the issue of how his reception will Pharaoh will go. 
And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. That word serve there can also be translated worship me. It's the same idea. That's what worship and service are really synonymous in our relationship with Yahweh. He says, If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So in this passage, we sort of run upon this and we begin to wonder what's going on here. At first, we might think that God has announced to Moses that he's going to frustrate Moses' efforts. Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt to deliver the people, but by the way, I'm going to make Pharaoh stubborn so he won't let you do that. What in the world? That's something that's difficult to understand. But in fact, just the opposite is taking place. By indicating that Yahweh could control Pharaoh's resistance to the exodus, God was assuring Moses that he was totally in control of Pharaoh in every way imaginable. Able to make him resist as long as necessary, even during a buildup of these increasingly painful plagues we will see in two weeks, and then make him give up and let the Israelites go at the exact moment of timing, that Yahweh had intended. And so the purpose here of chapter 4 verse 21 of hardening Pharaoh's part is not some attempt to introduce some abstract philosophical notion of God's sovereignty. There's a balance here, right? As later as we'll see in a couple weeks, if you flip over to chapter 8 verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So in this situation, 8.15, it is Pharaoh who is hardening his own heart. And then skip over to chapter 9, verse 34. It becomes even more explicit here of Pharaoh's own involvement in his resistance of what God is telling him to do. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So we see this balance of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, indicating control and power that Yahweh has over Pharaoh. And we also see the responsibility that's laid at Pharaoh's feet, that he has sinned yet again in hardening his heart and refusing to listen to the commands of Yahweh. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, God is dealing with Abraham and he tells him, basically Abraham tells him, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is right? So no matter how we work through this understanding of how Pharaoh's heart is hardened by Yahweh and Pharaoh is hardening his own heart, however we try to explain that, we cannot diminish either truth. This is where most people get in trouble. They tend to want to go to one and then ignore the other. But we have to be balanced. You say, Seth, well, if I'm balanced, that won't, my theological system's messed up. Then guess what? You need to find you a new theological system. 
Because the Scripture is our authority, not some creed or some historical understanding of a passage of Scripture. So we know that however we understand this, we know that God is just in His dealing with it. There is no injustice, there is no unfairness, anything else would be questionable when we think about this exercise of heart hardening. The Bible believes in a God who is really and truly God. He is Lord. He rules and reigns over everything in the world that He has created. And nothing exists outside of His creation. The Bible tells us that no bird falls to the ground without Him. That the chance, the roll of the dice, has the decision is in the mind of God. The fluctuations of the heart are in His hand, right? He holds the king's heart in His hand to sort of move it as a, the, the, the waters of a river and in whatever direction He chooses. It is God's desire and power to recreate, to direct, and to restrain. And a new heart is even a gift that flows from Him. So again, this understanding of God's sovereignty is not to introduce some abstract philosophical notion. Rather, it is further confirmation of what we have seen in earlier in chapter 4 two weeks ago. That when God says He is with Moses, it means something. He is that sovereign Lord above all things. No one, no historical event, no historical person is outside of his power. That's what he's communicating. And so it means something when he says he is with us. Because his presence is pervasively powerful. And this is not to be missed here, that what we have is a showdown that will come to its climax in a couple weeks when we look at the plagues and ultimately look at the tenth plague. Between two kings, Yahweh, who is claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Pharaoh, who is claiming to be God of the Egyptians. And who is truly going to win this epic battle that will take place between these two rulers? And Yahweh is giving Moses a, forte, a forecast here to say, listen, Moses, this, we got this in the bag. I hold Pharaoh in my heart, I'm, gonna, I'm playing with him, I'm accomplishing things through him, and I'm going to unveil that, unveil that over time. And what's interesting here is after he gives this explanation of what he's going to do with Pharaoh, and we're going to see why he does this when we get to the plagues in two weeks, he goes on to say this, why he's dealing with Pharaoh this way. He says, thus says the Lord, Israel, verse 22, is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve, worship me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So again, you see this matchup of these two, quote-unquote, divine beings. Pharaoh was believed to be a divine god. Now, we know that's not true, but that's the understanding in that day. And there's a matchup to say, look, you always say to Pharaoh, you've, you've taken my son, who should serve me, and you've enslaved him and made him serve you. And so you better let him go because I, I'm, I care about my firstborn son. I want them to be free of your bondage and I want them to be in bondage to me. A good bondage. A good service. And if you don't let them go, as you've mistreated my son, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. That's what's going to happen. So he sets up the stakes. 
And Israel here is shown to be this special people in the eyes of God, that they're not simply one nation among all the nations of the earth. Rather, Israel is God's firstborn son, a place of prominence. And this nation of slaves and outcasts that that was not of any way impressive to anybody else is special to God. And God wants Moses to make sure that Pharaoh knows this. You've picked on the wrong people. And as God's son, Israel has an obligation to serve him and him alone. And as we'll see as time goes on, God doesn't get into this idea of service until after he redeems them from slavery. And then he starts talking about the obligation they have now because he has saved them for them to serve him. He is, he is freeing them so that they can serve him and proclaim by proclaiming his excellencies to all the surrounding nations. And so here in labeling Israel this firstborn son and giving a, a forecast of what Yahweh's going to do to deliver them from this slavery, we're seeing God's fatherly affection towards his people. Later on in Hosea chapter 11, the prophet Hosea sort of recalls this. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. And so we're seeing God fulfilling his covenant obligations. And we're seeing that record of Israel sort of reneging and falling out of doing what they were supposed to do. And of course, later on, when Jesus himself is born, that is that quote that when uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus leave Egypt and return back to Nazareth, that that phrase is quoted by Matthew from Hosea 11, out of Egypt I have called my son, indicating that ultimately Jesus would be that firstborn son who faithfully kept the covenant obligations that Israel over and over and over throughout their history failed to do. So again, that's the second scene. The first scene we saw there, we noticed God's presence. Here in the second scene, we've noticed God's affection. He, he's calling Israel for the first time his firstborn son. And in the third scene, we notice that Moses escapes a divine ass assassination. And this is probably the most puzzling, difficult passage here. And even in the translation that was read, there is a lot of interpretation in that translation. If you go back to the original Hebrew and read this, it's, it's very very muddy, very unclear exactly what's taking place in the story, some, some of the details. The overarching message is clear there, but the details can be messed up. And at the lodging place, so as, as he's making this journey down to Egypt, the Lord meets with Moses and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom, bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. And it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, again, a, a lot of this, again, is clear here because of the translation and the interpretation that's taken place. But actually, when you read it in the original Hebrew, we don't actually know whom it was that God attacked. We don't know how God was about to kill who it is he was about to attack. We don't know how Zipporah, Moses' wife, knew what to do, right? We don't know how she, how did she know that circumcision was the solution to prevent the assassination here. We don't know why 
most likely this is the firstborn son of Moses, Jershom, why he was uncircumcised. Why hadn't Moses done this already? And as a matter of fact, there's actually some people that wonder even if Moses himself was circumcised at this point. And we don't know when Zipporah says, you are a bridegroom of blood, whether she's saying that in a romantic way or in an angry way. We don't know her intentions from that. There's a lot of mystery with that. And, you know, I can give you what I think's happening, but at the end of the day, I, we don't know. I actually think that this is a confrontation of Moses, uh, and that it is over the issue that his own sons are not circumcised. But even though we don't know all those details, we do know something. And what we know is that even as Moses is headed down to Egypt to deliver God's people and help them enter into a covenant relationship with him, Moses still did not have all the aspects of his life in order. Right? God had just drawn a line between the firstborn of Egypt and the firstborn of Yahweh. He's making it clear. I don't like how this is happening and I'm going to deal with it. And circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his people. Who are God's people? They were circumcised. They had taken on that sign, that external sign that God had originally given to Abraham when he first revealed himself to him. And within that covenant, there is grace, there is life, there is blessing. But outside of those who are not in covenant with God, there is judgment and there is death. And we're going to see that when those plagues start happening. God is making a distinction between people who are in covenant and people who are not. But here, as Moses is going down to lead the people, we find out Moses' own firstborn son is uncircumcised. He's on the wrong side of the line. Moses has, it would seem, treated his firstborn son as an Egyptian, as a Midianite, rather than as part of the firstborn of God, the people of Israel. And what matters for us, right, is where we're at in that covenant, that we have made sure we're members of the covenant of God that is by faith. And the sign of our membership in covenant with God is not circumcision. In the new covenant, the sign that we are in covenant with God is first and foremost the possession of the Spirit. That's what sets it apart. And those who possess the Spirit should be baptized. And once we're baptized, we have another sign of the covenant, which is taking the Lord's Supper, which is a renewal covenant that we take on and on and on until this life is over. This is indicated in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In Him that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. So in this episode of God confronting Moses because he had not kept the covenant obligations that God had given him, we notice God's holiness. His concern with obedience to what God had commanded them 
to do. It was so important, God basically put Moses up against the wall and said, you better get this right, Moses, or you're about to die. That's how important it is. So we've noticed God's presence, we've noticed God's affection for His people, and we've noticed God's holiness. He, he's not tolerating sort of a, a half-heartedness in doing what God had commanded His people through His leader, Moses. And then the, the last point of the story is we notice Moses finds initial reception with the Israelites. That when he meets Aaron and then ultimately Aaron brings Moses before the other elders of Israel and they present the sign, there is a reception of this. The people believed, verse 31, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Again, here's this initial thing that Yahweh's after. He wants his people to be freed from Pharaoh so they can go in the desert and worship me, serve me. And we're seeing the initial fulfillment of this right when Moses meets with the leaders of Israel for the first time. You've got to realize that these people likely had very little knowledge of who Yahweh was. Very little understanding because they've been 430 years since Jacob had arrived in Egypt until Moses is getting ready to deliver them. That's a long time to be slaves of Egypt and, and be, have an opportunity to forget truths that people earlier had known. So there wasn't a lot of knowledge about who this national God Yahweh was. But even when the first arrival comes, there's God's success is seen. There is initial worship. There is an embrace of Moses and the message that he brings to them. The Israelites are beginning to trust in Yahweh for their salvation from Pharaoh's hand. Now, what does this all mean when we bring it together? Right? We've seen, we've seen God's presence. We've seen God's affection for his people. We've seen the God's success here. Uh, in bringing about that worship that he's after. And so when we put it all together, I think we can put it in a sentence that, in this way. That God is present with his people to ensure their unhindered worship. We saw with the last episode with Moses that Moses could confidently pursue his call because Yahweh was with him. And Moses' call is to deliver the people, of e, uh, the people of Israel from serving Pharaoh so that they can be delivered to now serve and worship Yahweh. That's what Yahweh's after. He's after people, a people to worship Him and to proclaim His excellencies to people who do not yet know Him. So that's Moses' call. And quite frankly, that's our call as Christians today. We're called to worship Yahweh. But we also have a responsibility to speak God's word to other people, the message of salvation, so that they in turn proclaim the excellencies of Yahweh. So God is present with his people to ensure their unhindered worship. And by that I mean there's a hindrance here. Pharaoh stands in the way, an external hindrance. And then there is a the problem that we have within our own heart. That like Moses, we are not always fulfilling all the obligations that we should in regards to Yahweh. Moses could not go and lead the people of Israel to serve Yahweh with integrity when his own sons 
were not part of the covenant, had not fulfilled the obligations that he had to them. And so his worship was being hindered by Pharaoh's oppression, but also by their unwillingness to embrace what they had already been taught about Yahweh. So we confidently pursue God's call on our life because He stands with us, and that call on our, on our life is to be worshipers of Him and to proclaim Him in such a way that others proclaim Yahweh as Lord. But we can only fulfill that calling if God is with us, removing those obstacles and hindrances both externally and internally, which prohibit us from worshiping Him with all our heart. So, with that understanding, why, how, how does this apply to us here today? Well, there are two groups of people that I want to speak to in, in closing here. First question of reflection I have for you is, have you experienced the initial freedom of salvation? Are you in Pharaoh's camp, outside of God's covenant? You don't have a relationship with him based on what he has instructed. Just as like Pharaoh, you have been created by God. And as your creator, he has a right to be ruler over you. And for you to submit to his rulership. That's reality. Every single human being owes that to God. Because we are his creation. But every human being, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, has failed to do so. In various ways, we have cast off his rule, and as a result, the Bible says that the judgment for that treason is death. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from God. But the good news is God didn't leave it that way. He looked down upon our affliction and He sent His only begotten Son, His firstborn Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to this earth and He lived under the rulership of Yahweh the way we should have. He did it perfectly. And then He died on a cross and His death wasn't punishment for His sin. He was being punished for our sin. And He died. He was placed in a tomb, and three days later, he was raised from the dead. And Yahweh's way of saying, I have accepted his sacrifice for sin. And now I'm giving the Lord Jesus authority to give life to whomever he wills. And he goes on to tell us that everyone who believes, who trusts, not in themselves or some other thing to sort of bring them back into relationship with God, but whoever will trust that Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead is able to restore us to God, they will be restored to God. That's what we mean by faith. We're relying and trusting solely on Christ's death on the cross. Christ has been punished for my sins, so therefore I don't have to face that punishment. And then we repent of our sins. We agree with God that we've been at war with Him. We agree that our driving of our life hasn't turned into paradise. We've messed it up. And His way is best. So have you experienced this initial freedom of salvation? Have you crossed over from Egyptian to the Israelite side and entered into covenant with God by faith? The second group are those who are already in that. Like Moses, we've signed up. 
We may have not had the burning bush experience, but we recognize God has called us to be His people. He has called us to be His agents in this world. That we're in His family and we have the responsibility to speak His message of salvation to all peoples. Yet I ask you, like Moses, are you living in plain disobedience to basic instructions from Yahweh? We know that in a room this size, that some of us in this room are living in plain disobedience to elementary expectations God has for His children. One of them can be baptism. Right? The sign of the external sign of the covenant, initial sign, is that of baptism. And there are many people who will say, Well, I'm a Christian, yet refuse to submit to the sign of baptism, stating publicly and externally, I'm with Christ. Just as Moses had failed to take that sign of circumcision for his own sons, and God almost assassinated him for it. But some of us, in other ways, are involved in the risky business of trying to serve two gods. We worship our work, or we worship our family, or we worship our money. Or perhaps we're refusing to love as we have been loved, to forgive as we have been forgiven. Struggling to accept others as God has accepted us. Failing as spouses by refusing to love our spouse or to forgive our spouse by being actively unfaithful to our spouse in one way or another. In other relationships that we have with people, we're perhaps engaged in mental and verbal and sexual or physical abuse of people that we know. Others of us are not being diligent parents, as God has called us to be. And some of us are living double lives appearing to be good and godly, but secretly living a life of sin. Brothers and sisters, we have been called to be God's people. We have been called to be God's representatives, God's agents in this world. And this is a call to be holy, to reflect in our lives what we know to be true about God. And I don't say all that to somehow sort of leave us deflated or cast down. That's not the case. But it's true. And on the other side, we know that's not all the story. That the relationship we have is with a God who is compassionate. Who loves us as a father and calls us out of that sin into a life of restoration. A place of forgiveness. A place of removing the shame and recon reconciling with us so that we know the full acceptance of being God's son and God's daughter. And so if that's where you're at, sort of like Moses, I want to go serve God. Well, wait a minute. We've got some business that we've got to deal with. If you're going to be my agent, you've got to make sure that you're keeping these expectations that those who have covenant with me should do. And the reality is, this is a lifelong responsibility and battle that we all face. And I'm just thankful that we do not face it in our own power, in our own strength. We face it with I am, 
who is present with us. Just as we are confidently pursuing God's call on our life to be His agent in the world, He stands with us, enabling us to have the confidence to pursue that. Pursue that. On the other side, God is with us, faithfully pursuing to remove the obstacles that are hindering us from being His agents in this world. Whether those obstacles are external, or whether they're the internal sins that we are refusing to deal with. God will, with His children, expose those and deal with them. It may not be in the kind of case here with Moses, but it'll feel like that when God deals with us out of His love. So if you're in that place, I want to encourage you to seek forgiveness, to pursue faith and obedience. You see, only by returning to the way of obedience could Moses continue to walk in the way of of service. And this divine assault upon him was really an exceedingly work of grace in his life. And that is the same and true of us today. That when God exposes these things in our life, he does that as an affectionate father who loves us and knows the harm that our sin can do to us and to those who are around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you even for these difficult passages. We're thankful, Lord, that you are with us as your people. We're thankful your presence gives us the confidence to take on the calling you've given to us to be your agents in this world. And we're thankful that your presence means you're committed to pursuing any hindrance and removing it that prevents us from being the agent that you want us to be. And Father, I pray that these two truths would encourage us to know that we are safe in your hands, that you are working out your plans for our individual life, for the the life of this individual church, and for your church across this globe. You're not asleep at the wheel. You're with your people. You're accomplishing your purposes in them and through them to make this world a place that is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And Father, I pray that that calling to serve you, to worship you, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength would never be secondary in our mind and the life of this church than your church across this world. Father, keep it in our minds and help us be faithful to it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.